Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at a table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So this morning we're jumping back into our Luke series. We've been working through the gospel of Luke for over a year now. This is sermon 71 in the gospel of Luke. And oftentimes it's trendy uh, at the end of the year. This is our last sermon of 2018 and we'll be starting the new year on Tuesday. It's often it's trendy to do a sermon on goal setting and prioritizing and, and all of those sorts of things. And I'm not against it. We're not doing that this morning, but in a way we're kind of doing that because we're, we're not is taking the topic of goal setting or what you're going to do with your 2019 as our theme. But we are, this is a hint or a clue or a help on what to set your goals on in that we are diving seriously into God's word this morning. And so while we're not per se about goals, by jumping back into Luke, I'm wanting to communicate this priority. If you invest in anything in this coming year, if you want to start a new beneficial habit, there is no better habit for you to pick up than to take seriously and to dig into the word of God given to us. God has spoken. God is there and he is not silent. And the way that he has revealed himself is through his special revelation, the word of God. And so while we're not talking about what to do in 2019, in a way I'm trying to subversively put into our minds that yes, this is what we are about in 2019 is taking seriously God's word. Our passage for this morning has many different ideas coming out of it. In fact, you read some of the commentators, they have a hard time putting to putting these things all together. They're just kind of disjointed uh, stories or thoughts coming from the mouth of Jesus as he is teaching along. Um, so we, I, you could have break each one of these down, but I want to eventually, maybe in 2019, finish the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to take a huge chunk this morning of 10 verses, which is a little funny to me that I'm trying to get done quicker. So we're going to do 10 
verses in the Gospel of Luke. But there's, there's these four ideas that come to us. And if you look back at the text with me, they're, they're broken up. There's two points in this first section. We first hear the warning of Jesus against leading others into sinfulness. Jesus starts out by acknowledging temptation is real. There's no way to get rid of temptation. Temptation to sin is always going to be around. Temptations, he says in verse 1, are sure to come. There's plenty of temptations that come from without. As you look in the culture, as you watch TV, as you just exist out in the world, temptations barrage you. But there also are plenty of temptations that just come from within ourselves, that are out of our own fabrication, out of our own sinful flesh that we still wrestle with, Jesus is admitting temptations are sure to be there. But there's this warning that while it's one thing to say temptations are always going to be there, it is another thing to say, well, since temptations are always going to be there, it doesn't matter if I'm the one leading others into temptation. There is this warning, and it's a terrifying warning. I mean, to read this passage and to think what Jesus is really, to try to put yourself in the shoes in this picture that he is painting, it is terrifying. It's so serious that you be the one that temptation would come through, that this is the word picture that Jesus uses. He talks about tying a millstone around your neck and being cast into the sea. Did anyone... Um, this may be more my generation question, but go all the way through the swimming program at the Mount Ar- Judge Lewis swimming pool where you had to be a lifeguard. And some, some of you have done that. And at one point, you have to take the brick and you have to, um, I never did it because I quit. I'm like, I don't care. You have to take the brick and you have to stay in the 10 foot without using your hands and hold the brick. Does this still go on? You have to keep the brick above your head by just using your legs and kicking. And, and that's how you are, that's to pass the swimmer's test is to hold a brick over your head. I assume it's not real easy. I didn't do it. Um, but that's like a brick. Okay. It's not easy to swim with a brick in the water. There's not, that's not the preferred way to swim. Well, imagine if that brick were a 150-pound rock. So, you, I mean, most of us are not going to be able to even pick the thing up. But let's pretend like you could somehow get a 150-pound rock and put it on your back. Not a brick above your head, but put the 150-pound rock on your back and you're going to jump into the 10-foot at Judge Lewis. Or, or into block air, wherever, or the ocean, which is even bigger. What's going to happen? Are you going to be able to paddle your legs hard enough to stay afloat? No, right? Water, water is, is, it displaces nicely, but that is not going to be enough. Well, that's a 150-pound rock. This millstone that Jesus is talking about, the lightest of these millstones that existed are 10 times heavier than that. Three-quarters of a ton are these millstones that would roll around. You know, they'd, they'd tie the horse on the outside, and it would walk, or the donkey, and it would walk around and crush. And this giant millstone that's rolling, the lightest of them were 1,500 pounds. Three-quarters of a ton. And Jesus is saying, what would it be like to try to lift that in the water? That's going to be bad, right? Right? I mean, this, and it's a terrifying picture. You think about the reality. If you have a three-quarter ton rock tied to your neck and then dropped into the ocean. Jesus says, that is a better end for you than to lead someone else into temptation. 
That is severe language. These are the words coming from the mouth of Jesus. It's meant to be terrifying. It is far worse for you to lead someone astray. When he says, these my little children, he's, he's speaking about really essentially any believer. It could be someone young in the faith, but it could just be anyone who's a child of God. These little children, if you're, it could be a little one. It could literally be a child. But basically anyone who is a Christian, to lead them astray, it'd be better for you to just have a millstone tied around your neck and dropped into the ocean. That's the first picture he has. The second one is this one of forgiveness, radical forgiveness. If someone sins against you seven times in one day. Now, you know, that seven times, you know, over the course of a life, that's, uh, but seven times in one day, you think about waking up at seven or eight o'clock and then before the day is over, they've sinned against you seven times. And each time they come to you and say, I repent, what does Jesus say should be done? Forgiveness should happen. Seven times. That's a, that's a special number in, in Hebrew uh, thinking, a number of completion, of perfection. In the other Gospels, Jesus says, forgive them 70 times seven. That's talking about this radically large number of times that you are going to consistently forgive. Radical forgiveness. But this is the forgiveness that Jesus calls his disciples to. And it's clear that it's radical because... What's next the, in the verse 5, the disciples are like, we're going to need some help with that. <laughs> right? They say, uh, Lord, increase our faith. Forgive seven times a day. We're going to need some help with that. And Jesus says this rebuke, if you had just even the smallest amount of faith... You could say to a mulberry tree, which has got this incredible root bed. You ever try to pull a hedge tree or a a row of hedges out of the ground? You have to just cut them off and give up because they they can't. You have to dig up the whole earth around them. Their roots grow out so incredibly. But if you had just a little bit of faith, that's what forgiveness is like, is this radical uprooting of, of the natural order of holding a grudge. But if you have just the smallest amount of faith, you could uproot this forgiveness, uproot this mulberry tree, uproot this giant unnatural reaction to being wronged. You can uproot this unforgiveness with this small amount of faith. Kind of the main idea for our this text this morning is that what is needed out of these disciples is not more belief in God but a clear view of the God that they believe in. What is needed out of them is not more belief. Sometimes we like to think that's what their question is, right? God, give us more faith, increase our faith, and they get rebuked. Because what is needed is not more quantity of faith. What is needed is a clear view of the God they believe in. What is needed is not more belief in God, but a clear view of the God we believe in. And the discussion ends with a parable of sorts about this servant and the master. So there's four ideas from this passage. Now, how do they all fit together? They certainly have their own individual emphasis and and realities that they're putting forward for, for us. But how do they fit together? These behaviors, these attitudes are what flow from the one 
who sees God clearly and is believing in who he is for them in Christ Jesus. This is what flows from the one who is believing in Christ. These are the realities that come from someone who has faith. Faithfulness, not leading others astray, and forgiveness come from our delight in knowing God. And the central hinge on this idea is the disciples' request for greater faith. These realities, the posture of taking seriously your influence of others, the posture of radical forgiveness, of delight in your role as a slave of Christ, this God, these servants get done serving and they aren't thanked and they say, well, why would I be thanked? I've just done what I'm supposed to do. All of these things are impossible postures for us to just create out of our own strength. They're counter to our nature. The idea of putting others and their temptation, their, their being led astray against my own desires and what I want to do, putting them first is counter to everything in our nature. By, by our sin nature, we are, the Latin term is incurvatus in se. We are bent in upon ourselves. What the, sin, what, what the sin of Adam has done is it has bent every one of us to, to focus on not God our creator, but instead that devotion, that interest, that concern is bent back upon ourselves, And we all live life in our natural state concerned with number one, and we don't mean God the number one, we mean ourselves. We are concerned about ourselves. And it's, so it's impossible in this natural state to really do anything in this pure heart of being focused on the other over ourselves. But somehow when the gospel comes to light, when we see who God is and what He has done for us, when we, by His grace and mercy, repent of our sinfulness and trust in Him, the light of the gospel breaks in and we do become a new creation that this is what life becomes about. And how does that happen? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in the remainder of our time. How does this treasuring of Christ lead to taking seriously our faithfulness in front of others and the forgiveness of others? Well, this opening warning about not leading others into the temptation. How does the gospel provoke in you this seriousness about not leading others into temptation? Well, there's, there's two ways that you can lead others into temptation. The, the first way is to actively pursue and entice others to join you in sinful behavior. You can do that through gossiping, through lying about someone, through uh, crudeness or however the, you pick your um, just sort of low-level sinfulness that we, call per, that we have permissible in our, wrongly in our lives. You can talk about this low level of sinfulness that you provoke others to actually actively join you in. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have things like adultery, murder, theft, and all of those are actively pursuing someone else to sin along with you. To sin along with you, either through little picadillos of gossip and, and lying and things like that, or huge issues of adultery, murder, theft, things of those nature. There are ways of actively asking others to join you in sinful behavior. Those are things that Jesus is saying, it would be better for you to tie a three-quarter ton rock around your neck and jump off a ship in the middle of the ocean than to do that. The other way that you can lead to temptation is just through passive witness. So you may not be actively encouraging others to sin, 
But when you openly sin before others, without apology, without repentance, when you behave in such a way that's in front of the watching world that is contrary to a Christian influence, devoid of repentance and, and, and confession, that in a very real way is leading others astray. When you behave in a way out in the community, out at work, in front of your friends, in a way that says, well, you can be a Christian and you can do this, that is leading others astray. That is temptation in just the same way. You could possibly even counsel them. Don't do what I do. Do what I say. Don't do what I do. Think about your own children. How many times... I mean, this is terrifying. I'm not saying this as pointing the fingers at all you. As I've thought about this, this is terrifying. As you raise your kids and you say... Don't get angry at your siblings just because they've done some silly thing at you. And then your child does some silly thing. And what do you do? You get angry. <laughs> you lose your temper. I've heard of people that do that. What, what's going on there in a very real way that Jesus is calling me to is that I'm saying to them, don't do, do what I say, but don't do what I do. And I've painted a picture for them of someone who takes God very seriously, but at the same time thinks it's permissible to be angry over picadillos. To, 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 if, if my wife and I were to sit around and gossip and complain and murmur and with, with the children listening, they're getting two different messages. Of we rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, and we complain and murmur and, and gossip on this side. In a very real way, that is, that is leading the little ones into temptation because you are giving them a wrong picture of who God is. And so that's a big deal. How does faith then impact who you are in this scenario? What sin does is it convinces you that what is that it is what is best for you. Sin convinces you that it is what's going to make you feel good and alive. Sin tells you that it's okay, you deserve to blow off steam. My wife and I at home, we deserve to get to complain to each other because we've had a hard day and things, life is what it is. And so we deserve the chance to just let it all complain, all our complaining flow out. We, sin tells us this is what's going to make us feel better. This is what's going to bring life to us. But the gospel shines in and it reveals sin for the slavery that it is. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The gospel shines in, convicts you as a transgressor, shows you the seriousness of your sin, saying things like this, it'd be better for you to jump off a ship in the middle of the ocean with a three-quarter ton rock around your neck than to charge into sin. It convicts you of the seriousness of your transgression. And then as you're broken before God, you're given eyes to see this transgression that is so serious and deserving my utter condemnation and worse than being jumped off into the ocean with a rock around my neck is forgiven through my confession and looking to Christ. That, that this reality, that when God, when we're broken before Him, when we see the redemption that comes through Christ, when He makes transgressors His own children, when we see this, we confess with Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 that I'm not my own, for I was bought with a price. That, that no longer are my desires, my priorities in, in, in these sinful ways, no longer are they the driving force of my life, because I'm not my own. I don't belong to me anymore. Christ has redeemed me. I was charging off the edge of a ship 
with a rock around my neck. And what has Christ done? He has taken that condemnation upon himself. The justice, the, the, the judgment that we deserve, he takes upon himself so that through repentance and faith in Christ, we can be forgiven of sins, reconciled to God. And having that judgment, then we are brought to new life. And the life we now live, we do not live for ourselves anymore, but for him who died for me. And so what the gospel does in being able to put others before yourself is that you realize I'm not the center of this. I'm not the most important reality. Christ is. The light of the gospel shines in and changes, brings new life and changes the whole perspective of now my concern for you that I not lead you into temptation and lead you astray is easily outweighed. Because my life is is not my own. I have a higher joy. I have a higher joy than anything sin could give me. And you might say, well, that doesn't work out in real life. This idea of focusing in on the greater joy allows you to suffer momentary difficulties because of the greater joy that is really there. And you say, well, that's fine in theory, but it doesn't really play out. But it does. And I'll give you an example. Yesterday, uh, we went back to winter, didn't we? Did anybody notice that? <laughs> it was 55 on Thursday when I carried mail and a sweater and was sweating. And then yesterday, I had my winter parka on and it was cold. Right? I carried the mail. It's uh, my day job. And I, twice last yesterday, people would come to me. I'd be out walking around. They'd say, I feel so sorry for you. I, I, just, I, I, just, I just feel so bad for you. And I had to say to them, you know I'm not volunteering here, right? Like, I, I don't do this for free. I'm not bored. Uh, in fact, I got a little secret. I got paid yesterday. And so I did my books, and I balanced my checkbook. And so I go, and I work Saturday, and it's freezing cold. But you know what? I'm really, I'm not that mad about it. Because I, there is something greater going on than just me out walking in the cold for no reason. I'm doing it for a greater purpose, Right? And don't we all know that the ugly, boring parts of your job that every job really has, no matter how much you love your job, there's always a part of it that's just some weird, boring detail that you do. And and actually you can find, I'm happy to do this because this is how I'm provided for. Well, in the same way, all that is needed is a great enough and grand enough reality to overpower all the terrible difficulties that life can bring. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that grand reality. That when you see the millstone coming off of your own neck that you deserve laid upon Christ so that you can be adopted into his family, there's a grand reality that can hold the day when all the difficulties and unpleasant things that come on in this life, and they do come, but they're, they're all subservient to this grand reality of what we have in Jesus Christ. So that's temptation. What about forgiveness? This radical forgiveness. How can this radical forgiveness be done? Seven times a day, how does the gospel impact our forgiveness? Well, what are the obstacles to forgiveness? And first one usually is that they don't feel bad about it. Why? I'm not going to forgive them. They don't even care that they did it. They're not sorry for it. They don't feel bad about it. I'm not going to forgive them. But what Jesus is saying here, he's, the, heart is, the heart of this message of forgiving seven times is that You would much rather be forgiving of someone who doesn't feel bad about their transgressions. You'd suffer the wrong, they've wronged you, and you'd forgive them, and they don't really feel bad. You'd much rather forgive wrongly 
than to withhold forgiveness for someone who truly is repenting. It is far better that some be forgiven who don't desire it and who don't deserve it than to withhold forgiveness and cause damage to one who does desire it. You've got to get those priorities. I would much rather wrongly and unnecessarily and prematurely forgive someone that doesn't want it, doesn't deserve it, doesn't not seeking after it, than to withhold because I don't want to give forgiveness away too easily, than to withhold it from someone and cause them damage by withholding forgiveness. So they don't feel bad about it is one reason. But the second reason lots of times is, well, they don't deserve it. Their transgression against me is too great. How can I forgive them seven times? Think of what they've done to me. How does a Christian... So this is the objection. They don't deserve my forgiveness. But how can a Christian respond like that to the call for forgiveness? They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. With the self-awareness of knowing that if you are God's through faith in Christ Jesus... You don't deserve it either, right? There's nothing you've done to earn what Christ has done for you. In fact, you deserve, I'll remind you, the millstone around your neck walking off the ship in the middle of the ocean. That's what you deserve. And what God has done is rescued sinners, not because, well, you've earned it, but because of His free graciousness. God in His mercy and His grace gave forgiveness. And if that's the reality of the Christian life, I don't know how we can say that without pausing. They don't deserve it. They probably, Maybe they don't. But forgiveness is not about deserving. It is about repentance. It is about what we are giving. The reality is this. Every sin is ultimately against God. In every sinful act, God is the one who is ultimately being transgressed. That isn't to say there isn't horizontal wrong. There is. But in the ultimate, uh, David says in Psalm 51, he's just committed adultery, had someone murdered. I mean, it's been a horrible event. And he says, against you, speaking to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All sin is ultimately against God. He is the one who is ultimately being transgressed. And also... He will make sure that every transgression will receive justice. God is holy. God is loving. God is also just. God is just. He will make sure that every injustice, every wrong committed, every transgression will be given justice. The question is, either that justice will go for the Christian is laid upon Christ at the cross. Every wrong you've committed as a believer in Christ, before you were a believer and after you've become a believer, every wrong you've ever committed is justly dealt with by laying it upon Christ on His cross. And for everyone who is not a believer in Christ, their justice will be put on them at the final day. And they will be condemned to a a hell with the wrath of God coming upon them because the justice is going to be served. Either your justice is going to go to Christ for your deliverance or you're going to stand before God and bear it yourself. So, no wrong will escape God's notice. God is a God who deals justice. So if He will deal with every sin and wrong, what are we saying when we won't forgive? What are we saying when we say God can forgive this sin and God can deal justly, God will have vengeance, but I can't? What we're saying in a very real way is that unforgiveness can be idolatry. 
Unforgiveness can be idolatry because what you are saying is that the offense against me is actually greater than the offense that's against God. Unforgiveness can be idolatry. Their, their offense against God, sure, that can be forgiven, but the offense against me, that can't be forgiven. And that is a total missing of the point of putting yourself above God. That is, so how does the gospel influence there? Christ has forgiven us. If God has dealt us with forgiveness, God has dealt us mercy, how can we not turn and likewise forgive the wrong that has been done to us, knowing that ultimately, either that person who has wronged us will has had it paid for by Christ, or will justly suffer the punishment themselves. What if you failed to forgive someone for whom Christ had died? You think about the forgiveness that comes to a person through Christ, but yet you're holding on to forgiveness. Are you demanding that Christ die and they die? No, that doesn't. That is not the the Christian view. We are to forgive. So, in a very real way, this is this is what the gospel, how it influences our temptation, our faithfulness, and our forgiveness. But look at this last verse, verse fourteen, verse ten of chapter seventeen. Look at this last verse. You also, when you have done all that you were commanded, will say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The weightiness of the gospel is astounding. What God has done for us in Christ is all-consuming. To we who do live out in light of the gospel, taking seriously our influence, leading others, taking seriously our forgiveness, believing that the gospel is enough for us, We do not strut into heaven like we're super Christians. Even at the end of all of this, this faith and seeing God for who He is and believing Him and not leading others into temptation and and being forgiven ourselves for the times that we have and and, and forgiving others, it isn't like, yeah, that's right, I, I did all those Christian things. What we come to the end of the day is we're just, for all that was done for me as a slave of Christ, I'm just doing my duty. This, how could I do anything else? Look at all that the Master has done for me. How could I not do these things that are my duty? What can be that persuasive? That even when you do these good things, you get done saying, what do you mean? I didn't do anything good. I simply did what I should have done in light of all that the Master is for me. When you see the great blessing you have in Christ... There is nothing so great that you will not gladly give it away if God calls for it. The question we have to ask ourselves is if we know the gospel to be that big of good news. Do you know the gospel as that supreme of a message? That if it calls for anything away from me, I will not lose because of what I have in the gospel. This is what it means to truly be Christ and to have him as Savior, Lord, and treasure. So often we ask just what the disciples ask for. They want a greater faith. Lord, increase our faith. They want, we want a greater faith within ourselves. And what is needed is the same mustard seed, just this tiny faith, with clear eyes that see God for who he really is. Not a greater faith, but a simple faith in the greatness of our grand God, this is the prayer we need. God, give us eyes to see you rightly, that we might treasure you accurately. Let's pray. 
Father, I do ask for eyes in this place this morning to see you rightly, to know you truly, that in believing in all that you are for us, we might know the great treasure we have been given in Christ, a treasure that is above all other treasures, a treasure and a a value so high that, that no sin holds a candle to what we have in you. No temptation holds a candle against the brightness of the glory of the gospel and your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, give us eyes to see this this morning, that our hearts might be caught up in the joy that is found in your Son. God, grant to us repentance in this place this morning and faith in your Son who gave his life to rescue us from our sinfulness. I pray these things in his name. Amen.